You're listening to the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT podcast. I'm your host and curator, Rabbi Aprom Kipolevich, and I hope you enjoy this episode. You've bought your tickets. The ushers are about to open the doors. Yes, the projection has smicha is about to start. But first, if you own a retail business and accept credit cards, your customers are getting points, miles, and all sorts of rewards every time they use their card. And you're paying the price. That's why NRS Pay, a product of National Retail Solutions, a division of the IDT Corporation, offers its cash discount program, FeeBuster. You can start accepting credit cards for free. If your business processes over $18,000 a month, you pay no monthly fee and $0 out of your pocket for transaction. This means you, as a retailer, can enjoy the benefits of accepting plastic and your customers still get those crucial miles they crave and need. NRS Pay FeeBuster provides every client with a free credit card reader with no long-term contract, no early termination fee, cancel anytime without a penalty. I'm personally familiar with this company, and they truly stand by their product, and they'll help you with live stateside-based customer service on any issue or question. Visit nrspay.com or call 833-289-2767 to learn more about NRS Pay and the fantastically fair fee buster. Clear the aisles, the projectionist has smicha. And today, of course, we have with us not only someone with smicha, but somebody who has even more than smicha. He is a professor at a wonderful college in Pennsylvania, a esteemed author, one of really the, a really a great guy that I'm so happy to have made his acquaintance, Tom Shabilla, Professor Tom Shabilla, who has authored a, a great book in the past, which was called uh, Primetime 1966-67. Yes, Primetime. Yes, Primetime 1966-67. Yes, the, the, the first year that, uh, yeah, every show uh, was in color yes. that season. So the full spectrum of color. Yes, and you can find, we actually did an episode with uh, Tom a, a number of years ago where Tom held forth and took our questions all about that incredible year. But Tom is now actually on the on, on the cusp of his second book, which yeah. sounds like a lollapalooza. It sounds like something that, you know, it, it might you know, shake up the whole planet. It's called? It is called James Bond and the 60s Spy Craze. And uh, it's out hopefully soon uh, by Applause Books. So Yes, and we will, okay, we we will put our hands together for it. Of course, I am expecting a free copy, of course, but... Of course. <laughs> <laughs> so, Tom, this book, it's called James Bond and the Spikers. Now, you told me a couple of weeks ago when we were arranging this conversation, how did you fall into doing this book? A couple of things started happening. Uh, I uh, My friend Gary, he uh, had written a book that was a bit of a, uh, it was a, a fiction book and he has a reoccurring spy character. And when I was going on vacation, I brought it with me and started thinking about spies, spy movies, and kind of that cool 1960s uh, spy feel, kind of the lounge lizard cool, the tough guy, the guy that always gets the girls. I started thinking about those those types of spies. And I started thinking about James Bond and every television show that I, I had written about that included spies. I started thinking about, you know, just any James Bond knockoff that I had ever watched. And I started writing. Um, mm-hmm. And not too soon after, uh, I was contacted by my agent, Lee Sobel. And 
he actually had a very similar idea for a book actually entitled James Bond and the 60s spy craze. And it was Hmm. something that I, at that point, had been working on and was even very close to finishing. So So it was was really serendipity. In other words, it's almost like you created this book on your own and there was already a need for it. There was someone out there. There was someone out there. So Sobel, who was having this book in mind, did he have another author that you stepped in? Yes, he did. He had another author in mind, but that author was working on another project. Is he somewhere in the depths, somewhere in Bermuda, like under underneath a, a glass bottom boat or something? <laughs> yes, which actually glass bottom boat, another movie in the book. Uh, <laughs> but uh, so he was working on another another book for the next 12, 16 months and just agreed. Yeah, you know what? I, I'm, I'm not going to get to it for a while. And then so, he gave you his notes, right? No, I, I didn't get any notes. I didn't get any notes. It was something that I was already working on. Uh, so, so he didn't he didn't give you any of his research. So it really had to be everything is really your research, right? It's really correct, uh correct. Now, now now Tom, you know, I'm the old man here of the three of us. I think Joe is the baby here. I was so impressed, Tom, by the first book because you know, when we were schmoozing about it on the phone and on when we recorded. I think you sense the fact that you know this was an era I lived in, 66, 67, but you weren't there. You're you're a young guy who is somehow enamored of a world that's no longer here, right? So I didn't ask you about this last time, but was your dad like into it? Like, like, like what 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 is it that we know Joe's story? Because Joe keeps on telling us, you know, how he got into movies and old stuff. How is it that this is something which is seemingly something you shouldn't be interested in? <laughs> Yeah, for me, it definitely was watching old films with my father. It definitely was watching old TV just in general. You know, shows like Get Smart, shows like Dragnet, Dick Van Dyke, things like that. I I, I picked up on my own. You know, I I grew up in a, a time when, you know, that stuff started coming onto cable. That was the Nick Knight lineup when, when. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. It was it was that it was, yeah, it was that Nick and Knight lineup. And and it's inter- and it's and it's interesting, you know, the, even the Nick and Knight favorites, which you can still, you know, get a lot of them on some of the streaming services, it's not you know, there's certain there's certain old movies and old television programs that's have provenance that are still around. Uh, many, of course, have been lost. And and I think you know, you definitely went way beyond the, the stuff that you can catch on normal Tubi or Freebie or whatever it is, and to, to discover a lot of, especially in your book, a lot of uh, the programs that I guess they only exist in the Museum of Broadcasting. Let's go back to Ian Fleming, uh, because he, of yeah. course, is the creator of James Bond and all those big Bond movies. And, and there's so much, you know, politics and and money involved and who has the rights to what it's a whole labyrinth of of of, of strange things that were going yeah. on right um did you get into that as well like yeah i did uh, so you know those the, especially the early rights to casino royale that's really where it started getting a little sketchy is casino royale is casino royale the first james bond uh novel by ian fleming the first novel and it was uh, the first to appear on television, uh, again, on the show Climax in 1954. Mm-hmm. And so those rights were you know, sold then. 
I'm sure. I'm sure Ian Fleming couldn't resist a a, right. a, wick, a wicked smirk when he heard the title of of the program where his <laughs> his his spy was repackaged as an American Barry Nelson, right? Yes, yes, American as Jimmy Bond, Jimmy Bond, everybody's favorite spy, Jimmy Bond. Yeah. So so again, they 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 sold the rights in in in, in that respect, and so that started becoming some some murky rights issues of you know who could put who owns the name james bond who owns the character of james bond things like that mm-hmm. and, and even casino royale which i knew of course and i was telling you took this i knew it from the 1967 weird right. film which was i guess the first spoof of james bond it was the first big, big spoof of james bond certainly and yeah that was kind of the, the climax of it and it was it was really just mgm buying the rights from, you know, just down the line to, to finally right. there, there's, there's a whole bunch of people. I know one guy is Feldman in the middle and somebody's buying it for a thousand and someone for six thousand. And, mm-hmm. and, and I know that's part of the reason why when they the relaunch of of the Bond, uh, you know, phenomena came with Daniel Craig doing Casino Royale. Somehow they got it eventually. Right. That was yeah. that was Daniel Craig's first. Bond entry was was a redoing of Casino Royale, which yes. <laughs> again. So, but 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 in the fifties, you know, for example, that television program it didn't become a craze then, right? No. Although the the books were popular in England, and I have a theory about this why they were so popular. But they were popular and they were read across the Atlantic too. Uh, we all know Jack Kennedy was a big fan yes. of them. He was very famous about talking about them. What do you think you know Fleming was after? I mean, many people have already commented that the movies are different than the books. What is it that you think Fleming wanted to say with this uh with this character other than making money off of him? That's a really good question. You know, I mean, Ian Fleming was certainly, you know, he was a World War II vet. He was like James Bond, you know, and I, I think he he may have wanted somebody. You know, almost making an alter ego for himself. He wanted he, 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 James Bond was probably the guy that he wanted to be. I have another theory, and I, I think this might be touching on what you're saying, but I want to sort of like okay that you know part of the the the, the interesting aspect of all the Bond books was a, a general attitude in, in England in the 1950s was recalibrating themselves and recognizing that they know were they no longer were the world player that they had been mm. but they could still in a way be excellent by sort of outsmarting the big guys and that's why you know Felix Leiter and all the uh, Clarence or Felix whatever they call them in different iterations the CIA the Americans are always dummies Right, I think in, yeah. in in Fleming's book, they are basically like this big gargantuan idiots, right? And 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 and, and there's the recognition that somehow the Brits, yes, we're no longer the empire the way we were, but here's a character that using brains and determination can somehow within the cracks really be the saviors of the planet still, and and and, and that way it sort of was like a a fantasy for Brits. To to see yep. in Bond how they could still be uh, important on the on the stage, although they're not fighting Russia, 
right? Ian Fleming has them fighting Spectre, right? Which is, it's it's almost like this is bigger than Russia and America. In other words, Fleming creates almost a, a underground world of importance that in a way could make you forget the fact that the real players in the planet were really the U.S. and Russia and China a little bit. That sounds good to me. Yeah, certainly. And, and you know, and, and, and even with a number of the things where, and, and you see it is, you know, even if America takes credit for it, even if, you know, it's still, you know, James Bond's the one that, the, James Bond is the one that, that really did it. You know, James Bond is the one that really saved the world. Right. And which is, you know, if I'm, and again, whether you, um, if you like my theory or not, the British aspect of Bond and, and everyone involved, it's interesting that Jack Kennedy, who was, you know, uh, fashioning America for the 1960s, liked the stuff that was in there. Uh, he, he liked the fact that, you know, the digs on, on, on international diplomacy that the yeah. books had. Yeah, I did. I did talk quite extensively about, you know, kind of the Jack Kennedy connection with this in, in the book. That's and that's really when, you know, it, it, it took off. So another, I know that the world was, you know, fascinated, especially in America, you know, the lionized Jack Kennedy. How did that influence the making? Let's say again, again, climax. It was there. It was an anthology the series was before Jack Kennedy was. Right, no, no, I understand. It was yeah. an anthology series, so it's it's really just a by it's just a curiosity. The craze yeah. really only takes off with Doctor No and uh, right. and from Russia with love what does kennedy have to do with these films being made so i so once kennedy uh in 61 when he listed from russia with love as one of his favorite books there was a list of 11 books it was you know here's president kennedy's favorite books that's when broccoli and salt's been really started looking at buying the properties mm-hmm. and they had purchased all of the Ian Fleming books, Sands, Casino, Casino Royale. Royale. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So even though their first their first idea was to put out Casino Royale, it was, it was, you know, where it was in the book lineup, but they said, well, you know, hey, this is going to be a, a, a tougher uh, purchase than the rest. So they just started with Dr. No. And, you know, again, there's a lot of debate among Bond aficionados of what the best films are. And I know for today, since we don't have a tremendous amount of time, uh, we, we want to talk about the early 60 Bond films. Yep. So, you know, Doc, you know, there is, of course, Dr. No. And, you know, Dr. No is clearly a Bond film, but it's not it's not nearly as exciting. Most people believe and it might they think it might be the best one i actually went to see the film for the first time uh in the saint mark's theater in uh, downtown new york in in manhattan Mm -hmm. um from russia with love many people think that is really the best bond film do you agree i chose goldfinger i think it's it's the not the height of james bond well it's the height of the james bond craze and it starts to get a little wacky. Some of the gadgets are a little out of reach, but not too much. And it's from Russia with, although there is sort of a sense of continuance from, from Russia with the Goldfinger, the, as you say, the villains are more cartoonish. The plots right. are more elaborate and insane, so to speak, of taking over the world or, or mm-hmm. whatever it was. I think it was doing something with the gold supply of, of everyone. So in, in other words, the gadgets 
and sort of the sci-fi aspect almost of the of 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 Bond becomes more apparent in Goldfinger than from Russia with Love. From Russia with Love is almost you can even take the drama seriously uh, in yeah, some way. Absolutely. So I I think, I think this like as we what's often the spy-fi stuff that's almost James Bond's charm. So. I really think unless they really started breaking out of that mold, I don't know how much further that series would have gone. Again, so when I said people think From Russia With Love is the best film, I think what they mean is it didn't have all that extra dross onto it. it yes, it had, you know, that sort of glib Connery humor, but it wasn't like every single time somebody died, he had to do a one-liner about, you know, his death. and. And and it wasn't like his he had to conquer uh and, and, and ravage every single woman uh you know that 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 was decent looking, right? Yeah. Um, you know, there, there's one woman that he's somehow connected to and from Russia with love, and you know, and and everything else sort of uh uh you know it, it changes, right? So I think you're right. In Goldfinger, I don't know how many women he gets involved with, but I I, I think the amount of women he gets involved with uh jumps. The, the the sort of snarky attitude, you know, sort of becomes uh, part of his persona more. And I think, and you're right, Goldfinger is definitely more the template, the Bond craze than from Russia with Love is. And also has something, I don't think Russia with Love has this tremendous theme song, right? That only, it was only with Goldfinger. Well, Russia with Love is um, Matt Moreau. Yeah. Right. But, but you can't compare that to Shirley Bassey, no, you know. Sure. Shirley Brassy is 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 definitely the quintessential uh, one of the best James Bond themes. And, and I and I'll say also the 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 opening of Goldfinger, where you're not exactly sure what you're seeing, right? And what you're actually seeing, I think, is a is a woman who is like who is somehow fr- has that gold material mm-hmm. like free frozen on her body, like killing her, right? That's basically what what it is, right? There's sort of like a close up. Of, yeah, uh, theme, yeah. So in many ways, you know, it went bigger. That's why I said certain people feel that is it truer to Fleming. In other words, you've read the Fleming novels. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, those books they they do start getting into nuclear intrigue, things like that. So it does align with with Fleming's books. Yeah, not exactly. I mean, like Moonraker, you know, is is certainly not. They don't go to space in the book. Yeah, right. You know, the craze began because the movie was so popular, whether it was from Russia with Love or then Goldfinger, that everybody wanted to jump in on it, right? Everybody wanted to. So what was the first U.S. sort of knockoff uh, from the James Bond craze? In the United States. Um... Would, would it be The Man from Uncle? Well, Man from Uncle. So, I mean, before definitely on television, uh, that that certainly was was certainly one of the earliest uh, in television of that. I mean, I, I I I'm trying to figure out, you know, in my mind, being the monster kid, what <laughs> was what was Creature from the Haunted Sea spoofing? Because it seems to predate the whole genre, but captures the genre. I mean, yeah, it, doesn't, that's true. it doesn't predate the genre in in print, but in film, it captures that you know. The, I mean, it's it's a spoof of that genre 
it's it's five years, four or five years before Get Smart, you know, started spoofing it. It's it's a year before before the first uh, Bond theatrical film. You know, what what was was that movie, which I know you're probably familiar with. I don't know if Rabbi Kiplevich is familiar with, but I'm saying, <laughs> was that spoofing the the James Bond genre based on on the novels? Was that where where that where Corman got the idea for this? this Very character? good question. I didn't, you know what I I I didn't even think about the creature from the haunted sea, but yeah, it must. So why don't you tell our listeners because you guys you know know all about this. I don't. Uh, Yitzchak, can you can you tell us what the creature of the haunted sea is? You're definitely familiar with with what you've expressed as one of your favorites was the the original Little Shop of Horrors. Basically. Corman made three movies that were basically all the same basic plot, and even to a certain extent, based on on some some other films from from the same filmmakers from his team, from Charles Griffith and others. But uh, this was the third of the horror comedies that Roger Corman made. The first was the bu- A Bucket of Blood, second was The Little Shop of Horrors, and the third was The Creature from the Haunted Sea, which was about a spy who was infiltrating a a mafia group that was trying to take uh, to find some treasure from Cuba after Castro took over Cuba and trying to help the, you know, the people from Batista's um, uh, regime there to, you know, with, to get back some of the gold and things. And they were really trying to steal the gold. And the, there's a spy who's embedded in there, who's a bumbling, silly spy, but a, a spoof of this whole genre uh, kind before, of a get you know, before there was part. a real genre of it, right? Right. That that's what that's what's amazing about it. And but anyway, the the head uh, gangster makes up a story to scare everyone about a monster there in Cuba, and I guess they were trying to get to Puerto Rico or something. The uh, and, and then and then an actual monster comes and starts killing people, and that's the. I think I think you've talked about this before. It's now it's it's ringing. It's ringing a bell. The waves are definitely lapping into my head about it. You know, look, look, you know, I said before that that Bond spoke to a sense of helplessness that that had gripped Britain in a way to say, yes, I think the whole idea of Bond is that the government can't do it, but the spy can. There's this one guy who it's not an army. But somehow we, he can be a one-man army going places where others can't. A spy, meaning he assumes he doesn't he doesn't walk around with a badge saying I work for the government, and yet he is an agent, and that is part of the appeal that it's sort of like one person can somehow overturn everything. That there's these huge forces, but if you send the right person, this one guy, of course he has he has to have support. But I think that's part of why people love the idea of James Bond. Right. And, and again, and also that's that was part of the, again, starting to get into with things like in Goldfinger, where he became a super spy, where he was a superhero, where he was kind of this larger than life person rather and, than just a spy individually. I think part of it, and you know, of course, the, the Daniel Craig films brought this out a lot, was that 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 Bond has to act on his own, 
often, you know, it's Bond versus M and Bond is going out rogue or Bond is doing something and then they're not going to be happy about it. Uh, there was a sense that he, he isn't just a British operative. He, he, he's, he's got a sense of his own a sense of the way the world needs to be. Um, I'm not sure if, you know, and, and you sort of see that in some of the films, right? That the sort of dismissive attitude that Connery had, you know, as Bond, uh, like, you know, you know, he didn't really care, you know, anybody around him and Connery was able to embody that uh, uh, sense of, I wouldn't call it aristocracy, but much like, like, do I really give a damn about what who you are? Uh, and I think that's also part of Bond's appeal. I think the television shows, you know, let's talk with, if we start with The Man from Uncle as the first sort of, The Man from Uncle, you know, did, you know, I, I think spent a lot of time with, what what, what was it? What was the name of, of, of Uncle, right? Uncle was the, yeah. was the organization. Uncle. They spent a lot of time at headquarters, you know. And, and Man from Uncle was originally, was a Ian Fleming uh, project originally. Oh. Ian Fleming did have his hands in the original project. Mm-hmm. Um, it was, you know, uh, then they, they had not a falling out, but with bond producers, they really didn't want him, uh, too closely aligned with it. You know, really the early drafts of it were, you know, Ian Fleming's, I think the show uh, Mr. Solo, uh, was one of them was an original title. Um, mm-hmm. so they, they had tossed around using the Ian Fleming name quite a bit. So he he did he definitely had his hands in, in, in the project, right? And and of course, you know, one of the things you talk about the knockoffs, the broccolis. You know, I don't know exactly who, the names of the of, of the people involved, but one of the things that the Bond films were great was that they allowed kids like us to travel to these incredible vistas yep. and locations, right? It was it was it, it, you know you could sit in the in the front row or in the back row. And feel that you were in Rome, feel that you were in the Bahamas. Um, you know, th- that was part of what you know the, the the film was about. Where is the next incredible location that Bond is going to be? Now, the television knockoffs couldn't do that. They didn't have the money. They weren't able to to do that at all. Like, and I think you see that in the Man from Uncle. I mean, the Man yeah. from Uncle is, you know, is, I I don't know if they spend more time in characterization or not, but uh, they couldn't really match the type of high budget stuff that was going on. And yet, what was the idea that, you know, we can bring people to the TV sets because it's, they're going to think it's the same sort of fix they get from the James Bond shows, the same Bond movies. Was was that what the television producers thought? Yeah, I, I think it was, there was just, just a, a call for it. There was a, a as this title suggests, a craze for it. That you know, people would, were trying to get it wherever they could. The man from Uncle, though, it, it, can you sense the spoof aspect in it? I mean, they, I think I think certainly early on, um, they were playing it straight. In the first couple seasons, uh, you know, there certainly was a more serious tone—not even serious, but they're, they're, they played it straight. They played the characters straight. They played the uh, plots straight. Mm-hmm. Whereas later in the series, especially making the jump to color, as we talked about last time, right? We talked about last time, it started getting a little out of hand. You know, there was uh, at one point there was a, a cupcake gun, something <laughs> like that. Yeah. Um, you know, it just started getting really, and that was actually kind of the build. You know, it moved with spoofs. It moved 
you know, if you look at early spy films other than like James Bond, at first they were always kind of praised. They were, oh, you know, hey, this is something new. This is cool. Spy films are, are you know, are, are the cool thing. But by like 1966, it, 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 if, you, if you you could see this like trajectory of of critics, it was like it was a build. It was okay. These are really great. These are really cool. They're, they're inventive. They're new. And then by '66, it was all right. It, we're done with this already. So, so in other words, if it couldn't be the big packaged extravaganza of the Bond films whether it was Connery and then Roger Moore, Lazenby in the middle, then you're saying that the the knockoffs didn't even try to to simulate. Well, but no. before that, what were some of the, you know, we talked about getting the man from uncle. By the way, I just want to say that, you know, Robert Vaughn had very little charisma, but David McCallum had charisma wow. out of the Yazoo. I mean, he, he was a pinup guy. For oh, everybody loved him, and I would say he did a lot for detente before in the middle of the Cold War because he was a Russian agent yes. that was working together with the Americans. So you know, you know, again, we know David McCallum kept that accent. I mean, come on, David McCallum, he deserved the Emmys that he got. Uh, I, you know, he was great. So what what was the first uh, Bond knockoff movie? So in terms of in terms of in 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 America. Um, so in Europe, uh, there was a movie, uh, That Man from Rio, that was released in America. And actually, uh, it was nominated for Best Original Script. And it, it was uh, a French film. And actually, uh, a film that Steven Spielberg was a very big fan of. It. Mm. Um, you definitely see uh, Indiana Jones, um, you know, wear some inspiration here and there. Um, and that's a, a really great example of a film that, again, when spy films were new when they were fresh you know people were pouring on praise for it american international pictures who were putting out all those beach party movies at the time sure the movie dr goldfoot and the bikini machine with vincent price i think at the time crowbarred a character in there with uh, uh frankie avalon uh as secret agent double half and that was clearly it and and the character is uh, just absolutely, as absolutely, absolutely crowbarred in there. So, in other words, let's let, let just explain that the beach, the beach bingo films were already a genre. But you're yes. saying as there had this sort of interface between the Bond craze, even these beach films had to have some sort of spy, spy character yeah. in it to yeah. sort of like keep the dynamism going. Yeah, in in the film, yeah. Uh, um. So, the, so what what happens is it's almost like it bleeds into other genres. Mm-hmm. In other words, the idea is, is it's sort of like everybody's so in love with this 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 concept of this spy who can do everything and who is who is able to accomplish so much that it, you're saying you're finding its fingerprints uh, showing up everywhere. Yeah, yeah. You started seeing a, a, a ton of this. How about in the Dick Van Dyke episode with Godfrey Cambridge? Oh, you know what? I don't even think I mentioned that. Because let me just tell everybody, there's, there's, there's this, you know, a government agent played wonderfully by Godfrey Cambridge. And again, we talk about breaking the color barrier. You know, Dick Van Dyke, of course, did that with the wonderful Greg Morris episode where, you know, the, the babies get mixed up. Um, there were a number of, 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 of I guess, you know, 
trailblazing episodes in terms of race acceptance in the old Dick Van Dyke show. But here you have, of course, Godfrey Cambridge uh, playing uh, the spy who is somehow sent to Rob's house in Westchester. And um, and again, New Rochelle, it's New Rochelle. New Rochelle, right. <laughs> and it seems like it's somehow, you know, uh, he's almost like a toned down version. In other words, Rob gets crazy. Rob thinks, you know, Rob believes he's got a, a spy guy in his house and Rob sort of becomes infected by the what's in the American air. And Godfrey Cambridge actually shows himself to be, no, the spy business is a lot more Jean Le Carré stuff, much more meat and potato stuff than it is the sexy stuff that that, you know, Rob Petrie thinks it is. So I think that that show is also, in a way, a response uh, to to the Bond craze. You can throw that in and say, my good friend Rabbi Kivalevich mentioned that. I don't know. I, if it's- know yeah, I, I will have to. I that that's something I'm I'm definitely gonna have to keep keep in mind. You know, I, I did mention uh, there was uh, the Beverly Hillbillies episode. Je- Jethro becomes n- not not what does he call himself? Double not, not spy. Double not spy. Because because a zero is not if you're a hillbilly, right? You can't yes. say you can't say double O. You can say you call it not. And of course, Ellie wants to be a spy too, right? You know, it can't just be yeah. yeah. So you're right. There you see it for sure. I mean, and and again, it's sort of like making fun of Americans and and and, and people out in Beverly Hills who are so in love with this with this idea. Does a real spy show up in that Beverly Hillbillies episode, or is it all in well, Jethro's uh, fantasy? Yeah, it's just in his fantasy. Um, <laughs> yeah. uh, I mentioned uh, there's a um, my favorite Martian episode, the uh, where um, they think that he's a Russian, or he's a spy. The monsters, uh, where they they pull up uh, Herman uh, goes skin diving, and they a fisherman pulls him up, and they they assume that he's a Russian spy. I see. So there's all kinds of episodes, you know, dealing with spies around the time as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah, of course, espionage and, and fear of the Russians is a little bit different than the super, you know, James Bond aspect. Mel Brooks and Buck Henry create Get Smart. But do you, you know, I was talking to Yitzhak about this off pod. Do you see Get Smart in its complete arc as 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 a Mel Brooks, a Mel Brooksian uh, concept? I'm not saying the idea wasn't Mel Brooks. And I'm saying the opening is clearly Mel Brooks. The opening of, of, of Max going down one, one floor after another, after another in, in, from the, uh, phone booth and getting his nose caught. Uh, yeah, that's Mel. And the, and the cone of silence, that's Mel. But yeah. do you see the series as, 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 as Mel Brooks or, or was it, or did it become something else as the series developed? It definitely became something else, you know, and, and with any TV show, when you start getting cute with it, marriage, kids, adding new characters, you know, the, then it's like, eh, we started running out of ideas. By the time Get Smart, I think, got picked up by, it, it start, it, it moved to another network. Yeah, the last, the last season it moved. The last season it moved to CBS, I believed. Yeah. Right, it was on NBC. Then it moved to CBS on Friday nights. And and by that time, as you're right, uh, um, Max had married 99. Did we ever get 99's name? Do we ever know what her name is? No. no. Never got the name. Okay. So you, you have these two principles, but you're right. Again, it runs out of steam. But I, I was telling Yitzhak, I think, I don't think Ed Platt 
has ever been used better than as control. I mean, well, again, he he's really the unsung hero of that series, the straight man. No, oh, he's one of the best. I wonder if uh, in The Simpsons, the character of Superintendent Chalmers isn't based on mm. him. He yeah, looks like him. Looks like him. Definitely. <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Right. The the slow burn, the ability to accept. And again, part of, I mean, let's put it on the a line. Here you have, the, the spoof is, the super spy is actually a doofus. The super spy is... Is, is is somehow gets everything wrong instead of like Bond, who understands instinctively who to kill, who to get involved with, what's going on. Um, Maxwell Smart is constantly, you know, karate chopping an old lady, you know, instead <laughs> of the person who's 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 really trying to kill him, right? And, and, and some, also a one woman man, right? As opposed to Bond, who who is is is, is betting everyone, yes. And and yet he still somehow, and this is part I think the spoof is that somehow he's still this agent that everybody wants. Like somehow, but again, you know, I don't know how much Mel Brooks was involved day in day out in the writing. I, you know, I'm suspecting that you know the constraints of television, as opposed to once he was in film, and and there were, and a, a lot of the fetters were removed by that time. You know when he made the producers, and then he went on to make Blazing Saddles and everything else. It wasn't. You know, there there was much less, um, you know, constraints on him. You're saying, it's like you're saying the censorship. In other words, Mel Brooks always pushed flatulence and scatology and other things. And those were things that he could not get away with on network yeah. television. Yeah. But yeah. Well, it doesn't speak so well for him because, you know, you would hope he could work within the constraints, you know, of, of you know, because the producers is not, is, is not. You know, you know, although there are gay aspects to the producers, the producers isn't exactly blue humor. And the 12 chairs, which he made afterwards, as you know, with Ron Moody, was not really a scatological or uh, there's nothing really objectionable in there. But I, I think it's more the fact, you know, to come in week in, week out. Yeah, um, I mean, it's still, it's still an entertaining show. Still yeah. a- Let me ask you something. I mean, you have a spoof, but as I said to to Joe off pod, it sort of has to end with some sort of action scene. You know what I'm saying? On one end, you have this, you know, ridiculous scene with Jaime the robot or with Fang or with, um, or, you know, or, or, or the cone of silence. And then at the end, you have somehow tacked onto it the last five minutes, somehow, you know, he gets the guy, right? And, and et cetera. So it, it's sort of in a way, like, like almost uh, of two minds. It, it doesn't, it, it doesn't, re- the endings, never really through to, from the beginning. You know, the beginning, you know, has him clueless. Uh, he's being put out to pasture. He's losing his his license, whatever it is. And then, you know, it's almost, almost every episode seemed to have to end with, you know, some action scene where a Smart wins the day. I don't know. Well, I, yeah. I, and it, it was not a episodic, you know, show where you followed the action throughout you know it didn't matter what episode you picked up picked it up right there was no Um, character development although you you said they did try by getting you know 99 and 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 86 married even 86 by the way 86 of course you know is a way of ruining somebody you 86 the guy right that's why he was uh he was 86 um again i think the show was a, a it was fun to watch as a kid i don't know if it really it, it 
you really think you can rewatch episodes of it again and again? I don't know. I, you know, you, you have individuals who, who are great in it. Bernie Koppel, of course, is great as Starker and, and, uh, but I don't know. I, I really, I, I see it as a, you know, it, it's not a classic to me. It's sort of a, um, I, I disagree. I, I really love Get Smart. Look, the, the, the shoe, the, the shoe phone, you know, is it, but how many times can you have, who is the, who is the guy who's, who's, you know, how many times can you do the shtick where, who the, uh, the master of disguise is? Who's that? Agent 13? Oh. Yeah, something like that. Well, Agent thirteen, no, he's, who's he's who's the who he is. He's you know sometimes a woman. Sometimes that's right. He's a woman, and, and always a very buxom woman, right? Yeah, he's always course. somebody, right? He, he, he somehow like he, like who is he? Um, I, I thought um, who played Jaime in in the show? Uh, that was um, Dick. Dick Gordier. Dick Gordier. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I thought he was excellent. He was excellent. Um, and, and, and you could tell that he was, um, you know, he almost get this sense of the AI wanting to be real, mm-hmm. right? The Pinocchio aspect. I thought that was, I thought that was, that he was good, but I don't know. I, 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 I always see- figured he was Jewish, but he's not, I don't, I doubt he is. So. <laughs> I mean, the, ca- the character, the character had to have been, right? Yeah, it was I mean, yeah. Yeah. Yes, yes, yes. He was Jaime I mean, the robot. robot. <laughs> he was meant to be the golem. I think that's what it was based on. I think oh, it was based- oh, yeah. That's right. I, I, I think he's meant to be like the golem. I think is probably the most successful, I guess, uh, siphoning of the craze. And we talked about it our last time, which, you know, is the Wild Wild West. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Wild Wild West. And in and, and interview after interview with Robert Conrad, it, it's, you know, him saying, you know, I'm the first James Bond. You know, I'm you can call me Agent 001. Right. Things like that. You know, c- certainly, again, cap just capitalizing on, on that spy craze, of, you know, uh, like I said, with like the Beach Party movies where they they already had a, a successful genre added spies so with westerns that was wild wild west it was right but it also created steampunk the whole steampunk the whole steampunk world you know the the sci-fi aspect the sci-fi aspect of of bond when it becomes retroed into the wild wild west there you have something i think i can't say every episode works but to me it's a much greater success than 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 uh get smart you know, it, it had enough humor. Uh, thanks, of course, to the great Jewish actor Ross Martin, who was able to really bring a lot of humor. And and Conrad himself also didn't take himself ultra seriously. But you know, you you've mentioned how that that program was canceled because of the excessive violence in it. But the there you sort. And it was almost like a um, it was a sacrifice by the network. It was right. they said, you know, there were there were these you know, parent television groups going after them. And they pretty much said, all right, look, uh, we'll get rid of Wild Wild West. Will that make you happy? And apparently it did. What I would say is, is that we know television couldn't match the production values of a film, but Wild Wild West came close to doing that by, I, I think, inventive use of special effects, the miniatures they used a lot, <laughs> and miniature speaking, of course, Doctor Loveless, of course, um, <laughs> you know, is someone you know really a, you know a, a, a villain that could have been in any of the Bond films. Michael Dunn could have been a Bond villain. He really, oh, I absolutely. think, 
Yeah. Michael Duncan, because the Bond villains, as the series progressed, you know, as you said, they became, you know, the same sort of satirical objects that, of course, uh, Austin Powers made fun of, right? In that, uh, you know, you know, in, in, in that scene, all the uh, Farbissa, was it Fra Farbissa? <laughs> she, of course, is, she's the uh, analog to, you know, the the villainous in From Russia With Love. Yes. You know, that, that <laughs> um, and of course, Conrad, you know, you have uh, Robert Wagner. And, uh, of course, uh, Dr. Evil himself. Well, look, I know it's been fun for you to research it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, and, and you know, before we do go, you know, again, with uh, other things, other spy spoofs that, you know, again, in the book, I do cover the Matt Helm films with Dean Martin. Sure. Which took, you know, kind of those James Bond things just to a different level of absurdity and girls, you know, the uh, Martin betting, you know. Right. And, and, and it probably made sense. It probably made sense to use, you know, Martin, you know, had by that time, that sort of became his, you know, his his Hollywood persona was yeah. basically, uh, you know, betting women and, you know, the gold diggers and everything like that. So that it sort of made sense that, you know, they could have him as Matt Helm. Yeah. And then, you know, even even then you even had the Harry Palmer films, which were seemingly an antithesis of a, you know, very working class uh, spy, English spy, uh, who is reluctant and not a reluctant spy like, like Maxwell Smart. He was reluctant in, he didn't want to do it. <laughs> like, you know, he wasn't, you know, he was good at it, but he, he didn't really have it in him. What films were those? I'm, I'm not aware. I'm Harry not familiar. Was in The Empress File. Funeral oh, The Empress File, sure. Uh, billion Dollar Brain. Yeah, so with Michael Caine, those films. And also the Derek Flint films as well. Right, the Flint films. Again, there you had, of course, James Coburn, who, quite cool. You got to admit, James Coburn was, James Coburn uh, exhibited a, a, a cool aspect. And again, we have Godfrey Cambridge there as well in, yep. uh, in, in you know, playing uh, second fiddle. So, and I guess, would you say that you can, can you appreciate those films without seeing Bond? Maybe, right? Can you, can yeah, you appreciate? Somewhat. I think that those three, you, you somewhat can, whereas many of the others can't. Many of the others, you, you really need to have James Bond as a reference to really see some, some kind of, you know, connection or at least appreciate the, the era of, of spies. You know, again, and I, I, I did try to go, you know, pretty, um, pretty in depth. Um, I did try to, you know, if it did have some spy element, I certainly looked at it. And, and my criteria was it had to have either aired on television in America or played in American cinema. In order to get into the so book. In the United States. So, uh, one of the films, uh, I, I wanted to write about and I was kind of bummed and I thought, wow, ah, you know what? This probably never played in America. Uh, it was a, a Mexican film. Operation 67, uh, and it starred, uh, Mexican wrestler and, uh, monster hunter, uh, of the cinema El Santo in a James Bond type role and, uh, a masked wrestler. And actually, and I talked about it this semester and one of my students said, is he a spy with the mask on? Because you could usually kind of tell who he is. <laughs> and I thought, yeah, it didn't make any sense. I don't know. Um, it's a very astute question. 
<laughs> yes, the spy with the mask on. So he yeah. didn't make the book because it's a Mexican. No, it did. I found that it played a uh, a, a Spanish language drive-in in, in. Wow, you are you are a dogged researcher here. Yeah. You, we 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 should get you into the, the the world of the Talmud. You'd be able to discover a lot of interesting sources if you <laughs> if you put your head there. Wow. Yeah. Yes, you could find it played in one drive-in. Yes, on one Saturday night. In El Paso. It, it was a craze then, and there was a reason. There was, it was a way, I guess, to sort of forget about the Cold War. It was a way to, in a way, I, I guess, believe in individual superdom, so to speak. A yeah. person could be able to accomplish so much. It was fun. It was also, I think, a way post World War II. We were very gadget oriented, mm-hmm. you know. Out of World War II, the 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 gadgets that helped win the war ended up getting into the assembly line into people's homes in the 1950s, and then eventually, of course, in the 60s, we started thinking about the type of uh, mechanisms that would get us to the moon and get us beyond and get us into the 21st century. So I think that's part of why um, people enjoyed the films as well. Uh, there was it, it somehow wasn't unbelievable that you could have a, a laser beam coming out of a pen. Um, yeah. and, and, and and of course, the, we have seen that. But today, you know, there's still people caring about somehow the bond uh, phenomena. You know, who's the next bond? Doesn't does it seem to be passe to you? Do you care at all? Is it, or like, do you care who, about who's next bond? I mean, did you did you go see the Daniel Craig Absolutely. films? Uh, I, I've I've seen, you know, yeah. I, I I I go see every James Bond movie on opening day um, since you know. But you've got to admit the the the, the misogynist Bond has changed quite. A bit. I think Bond is oh, a woman sure. now, right? Well, no. I mean, the in the last movie, I don't know if it was the last movie. You know, 007 was taken over by. The the number 007 was taken over by a woman. Yes, um, but then he came back. I I don't see, you know, them making it a a woman. I could be wrong. I don't know. Yeah, because it would seem that it would seem that if you go back even to Doctor No, there'd be so many red flags raised about those. Uh, you know that person that persona. That you know, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if, if you know. Again, Ian Fleming definitely, I don't think, would recognize a lot of what was the type of angst that Daniel Craig had in these films. You know, the type of um, existential issues that was going through. Fleming's books were funny. Fleming's books had a comic book aspect to them. Um, yeah. In in the characterization, I think you know that's part of what they were trying to change with the Craig films. But again, you know, I, I guess everything has to evolve, even us. <laughs> so, you know, and we've, I guess we have to evolve for our next for tomorrow. So watch your step on the way, guys. Tom Shabila, thanks so much for spending for this time me. with us. We hope that this book, um, James Bond and the 1960s spy in the spy craze will be a will sell like proverbial hotcakes. They should sell like Lisa Douglas's hotcakes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you very, very much for for being on again. I had a blast. Thanks for joining us for another episode from the Yeshiva of Newark at IDT Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast app so you don't miss a single episode.